Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators. They're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them and they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to The Teacher's Story. Today we have Brantley Turner with us and I'm very excited to have Brantley uh, with us. She is a director of East Asian Education, founder and board member of the Shanghai Chibao Dwight High School. She currently uh, was in Vietnam in Hanoi. They will be opening a Dwight school there uh, coming in the, the new year. Um, I am so excited to learn more about her background, her inspiration to be in education, and her ideas for the future of education. So thank you, Brantley, for being here today. Thanks, Jackie. So happy to be here. So my first question for you is what uh, inspired you to get into education? Was there a singular moment or um, kind of path towards education or did it just kind of come to you? You know, the simple answer is that I always liked school. Um, I always felt comfortable in school, loved teachers, appreciated learning. Um, so I think there was that natural comfort with the environment of schools and the structure of how schools function. But the path to choosing to become a teacher was much more circuitous. So I often feel, and particularly like the types of guests that you've had on your podcast, I, I'm i an accidental educator because I don't necessarily have the same credentials. I didn't naturally come to an expertise in teaching. I feel like I've really had to work on it as a craft. I knew I always wanted to teach, but it was a question of what form that was going to take. So I've done you know camp counseling, experiential education, all sorts of different forms and I guess now I'm in some ways in my most traditional, you know, wearing my most traditional hat of being an educator. Wonderful. Yeah. And I have had many guests on that are just kind of like I fell into it or it was like something came to me and it kind of brought me down that pathway. And so it's always neat to kind of see like where you like started in education. Now, what brought you to China? You spent a lot of time about what, 25 years in, pretty much, in China? Pretty and much, pretty much, yeah. And then, um, you know, starting this school, the Dwight School. So if you could tell us a little bit about maybe the beginning um, kind of journey of coming to China and then the school that you brought there. My parents moved to Hong Kong when I was 17. That was not the norm. We hadn't been a family that had lived abroad or spent a lot of time abroad, but it was work-related for them. And that opened up the opportunity for me to start traveling to China. So totally not of my own kind of gumption or initiative in the first phase. But I got really interested in China from all sorts of different perspectives, architecture, history, the arts, language. And so I decided to take Mandarin when I started college in 1994. It was super hard. Um, I didn't come naturally to me. I have many funny stories of being yelled at by my Chinese teacher in college about not doing my homework and having the wrong tones. And But because I had this really rare gift of spending time on the ground in China, it kind of kept that motivation, you know, through meeting people and their stories, I got very motivated to learn the language. I really dug in on that. And I would say that my interest in China comes from that geographical centering. The fact that I got the chance to spend time there is really what 
propelled me forward. And, you know, I mean, time just flew by. <laughs> yeah, I only had a short stint in China. I taught um, in a summer camp in 2015. And it was an incredible experience. And I love sharing it, especially in the time we're living in now between like US and China relations and just how dramatically everything has been shifting. I think it's important to share these stories of working in China and like working in education. Like it's different than what people just learn about or read about in the news. Um, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to share, maybe just about like global perspective of being in China or your experience there, obviously opening in school there and teaching there. Um, Cause I think that's a really important part for people to learn about. For sure. So I think that, you know, the really key thing is like you said, perspectives where it, it's a question of how much kind of vision do you have for looking at things differently and understanding different contexts, particularly in our kind of media frenzied, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly in our media frenzied landscape. I think the way in which representation happens about, you know, what makes a story, what's extreme, what seems exciting is not necessarily always reflective of reality. So Everybody has their own reality. I certainly am not an apologist for China. I certainly don't, you know, kind of aim to try to explain everything that's happening in China. Obviously, I'm a Westerner. I'm not Chinese, and I don't I don't own that story. But I certainly have had my own experience of what it's been like living there and kind of embracing my own existence there. And I, I love sharing that because I do think it's really important with students and with others that are that are, you know, lucky enough to be engaged with. Yeah. And I think this kind of goes into um, kind of the mission of your school. So the Dwight School is kind of this almost like place to really experiment with globalized education. Like we talk about global education all the time, right? Like it's like the new pop ed kind of word, just like 21st century learning. But truly, what are you trying to do or what have you accomplished since it's you know been around for a, a while um, at the Dwight School? So Dwight is unique <laughs> in China, and it's the only independent, cooperatively run high school in the country approved by the Ministry of Education. I know that's a big mouthful, uh, and it seems like a very long way of explaining, but <clears throat> China's education market is very regulated. Mm. So you can't just walk into China and run whatever kind of school you want, particularly not as a foreign operator. So... Uh, we partnered with Chibao High School, which is, you know, um, kind of a magnet. They call them key schools in China, a very mm -hmm. high achieving public high school that students test into and created this cooperatively run model where students could access international curriculum through taking the international baccalaureate. And they could also add four Chinese national subjects to the international baccalaureate so that they would be qualified to be graduating from high school in China as well as having this international degree. That's awesome. Yeah, the IB programs are great. Like it's something I'm seeing growing in America. Um, actually, my previous, my high school, they started a STEM school and they have an IB program there. But I love that it is cooperation, you know, with China and with their government and their education program, but bringing something in to really give this experience to those students. Is it just Chinese students predominantly or is it students from all over? 
So we had the authority to take any students that we wanted, but primarily Chinese students capped at 600 students, 200 per grade. High school in China is grades 10, 11, and 12. So that was all, so grades one through nine are highly regulated. You're really mm. not allowed to do international curriculum in the other grades. Um, you There's ways in which schools implement it more kind of like English language plus education, but not at the high school level. So high school, mm. you are allowed to bring in international curriculum as long as you're following kind of the, you know, the framework under which programs like that can be authorized. And, and you know, it's complicated, but I think mm. the reality is that at least in terms of the Shanghai Education Commission, they recognize that there's not a one-size-fits-all model. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you can't, um, you know, uh, there's the Gaokao system, right, where about not there's about 9 million students a year in China that take the university entrance exam called Gaokao, higher test. But there's mm -hmm. only about spots for, let's say, 7 million, 7.5 million mm -hmm. students. So there's going to be students that can't get into college anyway. And there are also going to be students that want to pursue opportunities to go abroad for higher education. And obviously, you can go abroad if you've taken the Chinese national exam for university. You can still apply abroad to schools. But certainly having opportunity to take the IB or other international curricula, it prepares you differently. And I, I wouldn't always say better. I think it's important mm -hmm. that we we don't you know kind of negate uh, the, the what the Chinese national education system is able to do by great literacy rates and and pulling many, many people out of poverty. But at the same time, you know, that opportunity to do more collaborative learning, more hands-on learning, more um, group work and presentations, et cetera, that's allowed for within the IB, I think is something that, that some parents are searching for for their kids and some kids are, you know, searching for for themselves. That's great. Um, I always ask this question. Um, so the pandemic, obviously very different in how China approached it than America, but any uh, experiences you like to share about either being in the school, being in China during the pandemic, um, challenges, you know, learning moments, things that we can take away from this time period. So, you know, Qibao Dwight in, in Shanghai is a boarding school. And so when Wuhan closed in 2020, we had students in Wuhan. Uh, we were already on Lunar New Year break. And we we had to wrap our heads really quickly around what it was going to mean to run a school community through the pandemic. And obviously there wasn't a blueprint. There wasn't, uh, you know, a handbook for us to refer to. So we really just paved the road in front of the bus. And, you know, we had started Chief Out Dwight five years. So 2014, we started. Okay. So we sort of had five full years <clears throat> of school under our belts, but we were still a startup, right? I mean, we were trying mm -hmm. to just learn yeah. how to operate this new model. And so many of our international faculty were abroad when the pandemic kicked off. And so I basically picked up the phone, called my colleagues, and said, listen, you know, are you going to come back? We, I know we don't know what this is, but let's get back, circle the wagons, kind of figure out how to, how to handle this and then, and then go from there. And I think, so I think the first lesson was just take it day by day. I mean, we yeah. were trying not to kind of project forward to what ifs, and it was a scary time. Um, obviously globally, it was scary and we were just working off anecdotal evidence. So, you know, the stuff around us, like how was Shanghai doing? Were people getting sick? Was there food available? I mean, it was it was really more about our own lived experience than it was about listening to the media, about having conversations with with folks that were not as informed. It was a tricky time with students. Mm -hmm. I really felt for those grade twelves that you know were then not able to sit their exams that 
were not prepared for their senior year of high school to be disrupted in that way. A lot of uncertainty about whether they were going to be able to leave China, take their spots at the universities they'd been admitted to. And, and I would say that that was one area that we didn't necessarily get it right. I felt like we really got it right with our faculty. We really came together. I'm indebted wow. and grateful to that team of teachers yeah. uh, for coming into an unknown, be they Chinese nationals or international teachers and keeping school going. I mean, we immediately pivoted to online assessment, online classes. We ran a synchronous schedule. We We just did it. You know, we didn't sort of say, let's take a pause and reflect, we just went forward. And I think at the right time, that was the right decision. I think what we did a bad job of was communicating with our students at the beginning. We we felt like we knew what we were doing as adults, but we didn't necessarily allow enough room for student voices. And even if we couldn't have honored all the desires of those student voices, I think that was one area that that wasn't uh, done as well. And, and as a result, kind of created a disconnection with that class of 2020. Yeah. We tried to rectify that more going mm -hmm. forward. And I think now, my, my former colleagues in China are working hard through this current, you know, Shanghai is in online learning at the moment, right? They're mm -hmm. in distance learning and they will be through Chinese Lunar New Year. So at least through Feb mid-February. And what did, what did we learn? And I think those student voices mm -hmm. in the mix were, were a really important part of that learning. Yeah. Um, you know, even though it's so different, I feel the same way about that class of 2020. And we did the same thing, like pulled together the whole school pivoted to online in like four days. And we got the students ready for that. But as far as like ending their senior year and like the whole flux of graduation and like everything, it was just kind of like they were getting dumped on. And I felt so bad. Like we were delivering diplomas to their houses, obviously with masks on and social distancing. And they did luckily get a graduation later in the summer outside and everything was like distance and in mass, but um, it just yep. was this moment of real disappointment, you know, I am. Um, I had a conversation with a student who was kind of, I would say bold enough or close enough to reach out and want a private conversation about what, what our spring had been like that year. Yeah. And I can remember in that conversation, me telling him, I said, you know, I know we've pushed and I know we've said, stay the course, no, you know, no stopping, keep moving. And I said, you know, I just feel like maybe we love you more. We want to deliver this experience for you. We want to push you. We want to make it happen. And, and, and it, you know, whether that's accurate or not, um, and, and time will tell whether that was the right call. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was that, that feeling of that relentless commitment to yeah. speed and to deliverables felt like an act of love. Like we feel like we owe this to you and we want yeah. to give you a high school experience. And, you know, look, I don't, I still don't know to me. I, I still don't know what was the right call, but we all did the best that we could. And, and unfortunately for China, you know, they're still having to navigate some of that right yeah. now. And I know that that feels really, really challenging having had the three years already mm -hmm. and being faced with the current situation. But, you know, I know the team at Chibao Dwight is, is doing everything they can to, to stay students at the center, even if students don't feel like that's necessarily the case all the time. It being a boarding school, did it feel like at least there wasn't the challenge of everyone going home and figuring out like connectivity with like virtual school or just like home life? Everyone was there still. So what happened was, so we were on break already when oh. Wuhan closed in, in January okay. of 2020. So we couldn't bring students okay. back to campus. We brought them back. The government allowed for them to come back starting April 27th. Everybody was 
everybody that was allowed to be back on campus through what cities they were from, et cetera, was by May 7th of 2020. So we did bring students back. Okay. Now, just, you know, an interesting piece, um, our, so we had to shut down again this past spring. We mm -hmm. went to distance learning March 11th, 2022. And we, our Chinese principal spent 71 days on that campus with at least 30 kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's a hero. Like she's mm -hmm. just, she is so self-sacrificing. And one mm -hmm. of the things that's interesting is, right, but it's some of, some of what I think the last three years have taught us is also how to reflect on that sacrifice. So it's one mm -hmm. thing that in the moment, you've just got to sometimes, you know, put your own best interest to the side and, and do your job. But at the same time, taking those pauses to reflect on like, mm -hmm. what is the price of that sacrifice? And, and what is, you know, what is the kind of leftover feelings about it? I don't want to say damage. I mean, I don't think it's always damaging, but it can be. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think, you know, you've reflected in the podcast over your first season uh, about that. Like, mm -hmm. what is what is the balance? What is the cost to health? How do we strike that as educators who feel a commitment to our craft, to our calling, to our purpose, whatever, however an individual defines it? Yeah. And that's, I don't know that um, our entire community in China at the school has been able to step into that yet because they're still really living it yeah, day to day. They are. I know it's so different. And I just had a student recently talk about this as we do current events in my class um, with, uh, you know, some of the protests that have been occurring in China. And I just, I really feel for the citizens um, to be going in and out of lockdowns and, and feeling like, is there a way out, you know, when you're coming into year three? and how challenging that is. And just being a teacher in really, our lockdown was just that spring. And then we were hybrid for the year of 2020 to 2021. And then last year we were fully back, but in mass. And then now this year, it's like nothing, like no protocol, like nothing. Like it's to us, and I'm not saying this in an insensitive way at all, but just to us and how it feels at our school, in our area, it's like, it's over, you know, besides people still getting sick. And now we have the, the flux of the flu has been really bad because everyone's immune system has been totally lowered. Um, so I, it's just a totally different reality, you know, and I think that's why this is an interesting conversation to have with, uh, you know, China based school and you, and then, you know, here I am in America, it's just vastly different. Do you, feel free to share anything that you want to do. You see like a, an, an ending or a coming out of this like period of it feeling just like in and out of lockdown or just protocol, or I don't know what your take is while you're, you've been there in China right now. Yeah. So, you know, I've been asked a lot about the protests, as you can imagine, just mm -hmm. from friends and family and, you know, communities. And I'm, I've learned to be so circumspect in the sense that I think this, I think that time will tell that this was a significant moment in uh, China's history, yeah. modern period. I think that's without question. I think also my own kind of media review, you know, how does the media choose to tell stories and co-op stories? And I'm, I'm not certain that I have a fully formed point of view on that yet. And obviously I'm in very good contact with lots of friends on the ground in Shanghai and across China, just as, you know, friends. And 
I think something that's it's a fascinating period because the the dynamics of how some of the unhappiness has affected the current opening is something that I think there's more time needed to really assess. But where my heart went when I started seeing all of that is just feeling for people, friends, community on that fatigue. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think all of us have felt fatigue in different ways. And the way in which fatigue motivates you to action is, is really interesting to me. And I think it's about caring about individual people. It's about yeah. having empathy, you know, and, and I think I can shut out the kind of news blitz because I just take it to the human stories. And yeah. I guess for me, that's my kind of whole mission in education is about people to people experiences and trying to not pass judgment on circumstances that I don't fully understand. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, the same thing in the US. I mean, when I watch the US news or, you know, or don't, <laughs> I try to also take things to that human level. And I think we have that responsibility mm -hmm. as teachers to not sort of trade in biased narratives, but to try to help our students see more could be going on than meets the eye. And how do we understand that as, as human beings with, you know, common commonalities, like tired of COVID management, whether that's one form of COVID, COVID management in China and another in the US. I mean, people get, get burned out. So yeah, yeah, that's a really great perspective. And I think what you said there about not having a full opinion or perspective about what's going on based on different media is super important to teach our students that. And I had a colleague that retired in 2020 and she left us with, you know, our job, we're in the history department, is not to just give information, obviously, or just teach like the different perspectives and bias, but we need to teach students how to dissect, you know, the news, dissect the media, dissect the sources they're looking at, and then come up with their own viewpoint. And also lean into this kind of accessing information, analyzing it in an empathetic way, so that we really can understand like what people are going through. So much of like why I went into history and how I try to teach it, I don't know if I fully do that, but is to share it as a human story, right? And like, these are humans who have gone through different experiences in time and to really try to understand that time as well and like where they were living and what was going on and not necessarily always come from a place of judgment of like, why did they do this, you know? Um, and I think what you're doing at this school and your perspective is so key. And this kind of leads into my last part about kind of the future of education. And on, honestly, like, I would kind of like to pick your brain a little bit about your experience in this school in China versus like what you've seen in America and like maybe what you're doing, we could like learn from it in a way. Like, is there anything that, you know, you're doing or you're you're seeing in China versus America that definitely can be like changed or improved because we have a we have a crisis on our hands um, in our you know public American education system, especially with all the teachers that are leaving. I think that it's one of the things that fascinates me about teachers, and maybe this is some of the international teacher reality, you know, and you know this probably from some of the time you've spent abroad, is that. In Shanghai, 
I had my teacher community and my school community, and then I had my non-school community and my other friends. Or, And the, the, the pandemic also really showed us how much of a lack of common understanding there was, you know, right? That all of a sudden, when parents, kids were home online learning, you know, they stepped into this alternate universe of, wow, what is a teacher's day like every day? And, and at the time, I really thought, wow, maybe this is an opportunity going to be a watershed moment for people mm. kind of understanding what it means to teach and how incredibly hard it is. And I don't know that that's that reconciliation has occurred, right? That that sort of sense of like, oh, wow, now that my kids are back in the classroom, I'm going to celebrate the craft of teaching. I'm going to respect it. I'm going to value it. You know, how, how hard it is to get a teaching license. You know, mm -hmm. so many people who don't understand that would think, ah, oh, I mean, teachers, whatever. No, that's it is not something that everybody can do. And, and I think that's the, I think people pay lip service to the idea that not everybody can teach, but when you really kind of walk in the shoes of an educator and take on that responsibility, it's, it's at a whole other level than I think non-teachers actually understand. And so I think part of the difference, of course, and this is a cliche difference, but it's true in the China context in which we taught as international educators or as Chinese national educators, there is a fundamental respect for educators. There is a fundamental belief that it's not easy, that it is something to be revered and admired. And maybe that's changed a little bit. I think in China, in certain contexts, teachers are, are not necessarily as celebrated as they once were, but fundamentally there, there's a respect. Um, and I think that that's one of the major challenges of, of the teaching profession in the US because not only maybe is it not respected, it's not validated. No one takes a moment to sort of celebrate. And, and yes, okay, again, cursory celebrations of teachers, sure. But I mean, really to try to walk in the shoes and understand why it's so valuable. And so I think teachers leave the profession, they feel undervalued. They don't feel that, they're, that the challenge of their job is recognized or valid, you know, considered a valid career path. It's kind of like, well, couldn't do anything else. So you teach, mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Most people can't teach. Um, and so there's a there's just a traditional values disconnect around around, I think, learning. And then I think the other piece of it though that has always given me hope in the US is the space for ideas. And then this is one of the things that I would say about the future of education that maybe concerns me the most. In China, in our context, we had very, very bright students who were able to access an incredibly rigorous cur curriculum in their non-native language. So they're not native English speakers. They could do the IB in English. I mean, that's something to be really admired. But yeah. the, the kind of interactive nature of the classroom might be a little bit less than what some teachers uh, might expect from top students. So meaning uh, desks in rows and a lot of content transmission as opposed to debate and dialogue. And then in my U.S. classroom that I've been in this fall in New York, uh, I'm teaching IBDP global politics, and it's all driven by discussion, debate, pushing questions, further probing. And, you know, it's really a joy to, to be able to teach in that kind of context where you feel like you can have collaborative ideation with their, your students. And I think that the challenge becomes the disconnect between what are what is a private school education in the U.S. versus what is a public school education in the U.S.? And is anybody encouraged to become a teacher? I mean, where are the voices to say this is an amazing career path? You can 
you can achieve so much with this career path. I mean, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of great advocates out there to say, become a teacher. You're, you can have an amazing life. Um, and I think that's the main thing for me that in China, it still feels like people might celebrate that choice. And here, <clears throat> I mean, if nobody's celebrating it, why do people want to do it? Exactly. Yes. And I, I mean, I, saw that even in my short time in China, like I felt very respected. Um, it, it felt like a culture of, that's been there for a long time of like your teacher is of this status, right? And you respect and look up to your teacher. And it's not necessarily because you're just an expert in a content field. You are a mentor, like you are there to help guide, you know, these pupils. Um, and I think some people in America get it, but as a as a whole society, and particularly, which was shocking, I think, to many during um, kind of the middle of the pandemic, was there's so much pushback. So it was like, okay, like you were saying, maybe this would be a watershed moment to see what teachers do because it was more transparent and you could see it virtually. And in some places in our country, it went the other way. And it was like, what are you teaching my children? Let's, let's like, control that right and there was after all the work we put in to make school happen in any way that we could then there was this you know pushback of curriculum and what you're teaching and particularly in history um and not everywhere but it was it was used for politics and I think the two things that hold America back with teaching and so many other programs is politics and capitalism. And I'm not poo-pooing capitalism. I'm not going to be here like, oh, yes, we should <laughs> down with capitalism. But the, the fact that it is an underpaid profession and some areas of the country, it's, it is paid pretty well, like New York and New Jersey, Northeast, you know, pretty much. But for a lot of the country, it is not up there with some of the other top tier professions. So when you know, people want to celebrate teaching and to go into it. We also have the reality of like, can you have a lifestyle? Can you raise a family, right? Can you do this and feel like you can grow, um, grow in leadership, but also grow in your salary like you can do in so many other fields. And so those two areas are really, they're difficult too, because just like you said, there's a fundamental respect for teachers in China. There's a fundamental culture around politics and capitalism in America. And it's like, how do we change that? You know, like, how do we really change that? Um, There is, yeah. You know, the other thing about that too, is that think about you and I could sit here and I'm sure a lot of your listeners and we could come to a consensus that the the control in China is an issue. Okay. I, I think that would be something that we could potentially universally agree to. Right. But it, it's heartbreaking for me when I see similar trends in our context in the U.S., right? As humanities teachers, that's, you know, you're in my shared space. And what that means, libraries, which are near and dear to my heart as places that we, you know, inspire young people. And there is no question that there is a political agenda in a lot of school contexts that is totally a space that everybody would negate the China approach. I think universally in the US, we would negate that approach. Right. But how come we can't put the shoe on the other foot and look at ourselves with that lens? That's the greatest gift to me of spending time in China, not China itself. 
but the way it allows me to be reflective and gain perspective on my own context. And frankly, like yeah. I would fight for it. I would fight yeah. for the the right to retain that democratic space uh, and those and the liberal ideals that have defined the U.S. We've got a lot of problems. We have systemic issues. I believe that wholeheartedly. But at the same time, we've got to create that space for uncomfortable conversations. If we can't do that, then then how are we different than a, a place that 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 thrives off censorship as the norm? Yeah, absolutely. I again, another kind of gift I've been given by spending a lot of time outside of my own context, cultural context, is I can sit with very uncomfortable or you know opposing viewpoints very easily. Uh, and I think, Sitting with paradox and being able to kind of sift through conflicting ideas is really, really critical to progress. And I think we need to keep that space, right? You know, as much as I, a group think just makes me insane because yeah. I think, and I and I don't I don't like the trend of of not creating space for conflicting viewpoints within the U.S. I think we need to be able to get those open and out there and and try to understand where people are coming from. And the reality is that it's, there's so many people saying this. I feel like so many of the conversations I've had in the US wanna make space yeah. for trying to understand why people think and feel differently. But yet the the macro kind of media landscape doesn't allow that to happen in a way that that feels safe or comfortable and people don't wanna share with, with folks that they don't agree with. So. This is certainly something for me um, that is is important, and I think we've got to keep talking and keep sharing. But you know, the stakes are high for for a lot of people to not be extreme in their viewpoints, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, where's the space for for sort of middle of the road, just trying to help young people like get through? Um, yeah, yeah, and it's changed a lot. It's one of our goals for our history department and as a school is to start working on using protocol to structure these conversations in the classroom. And we have an advisory program. So it's kind of like a nice place to start because you have a small group. They're pretty close with you. You build a rapport. It's 10 students. So it's pretty easy to manage, but using a protocol of probing questions, guiding questions, like clarifying questions not coming into a place that we're going to debate, right? Like if someone shares like a political view. And so it's um, something I want to institute in the new year and start with my advisory and then um, hopefully then bring that to the classroom. But as a history department, we've talked about making that like a real goal, having the skill of civil discourse and doing it in a way where you're able to listen to other perspectives. Because we, So I think that is a huge part of education right now. I mean, especially in America, but we need to be able to have these conversations. And like, I think it's great when you can have this mindset because you've been out of the country for so long to say like, I can look at these different viewpoints and not have necessarily a triggered response. Whereas when we're here just in America, getting fed all the time, we're just like, it's just so reactionary, you know? I think at the end of the day, it comes down to do we allow our do we allow ourselves to live in fear of ideas? And mm. I know what it feels like to live in fear of ideas or or a kind of controlled situation. And I don't want to live in that in my own context. However, I do think that the the case for offensive speech and you know attempts to be offensive 
versus attempts to promote dialogue is a really we have to thread that needle and like yeah. you said in the classroom right we have to make space for ideas but we have to shape them and guide and we can't we can't throw away ideas but at the same time we don't have to allow for you know the a person who is offensive in the way they approach others doesn't get to control whether that right. other person is offended or not right they need Absolutely. to then understand why that person is offended and try yeah. to come to an understanding of like you said increasing empathy increasing understanding but right our job is not to um is not to disallow offensive speech but it is certainly to guide it away from a you know from a place that is about being offensive and this is I mean, it's an amazing time in a way to mm. be, you know, tasked with this as educators, but it's also can can feel very disheartening. And I think finding yeah. ways to stay motivated and connected and feeling safe, right? I, I just think that 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 we don't want to be afraid in our classrooms, um, and we don't want to be afraid of of being misunderstood as teachers and what we're all about, but the same time you know what the kind of work you're doing with podcasts getting stories out there is a good way to to promote that that openness but mm -hmm. it's a, it's a tricky time i feel yeah it is and i think it's an important time to take advantage of because i think the pandemic is kind of like an opening to being in a place where we need to be more transparent and have these conversations where i think a lot of things were brushed under the rug for a long time and so i was just having an a conversation yesterday with a colleague about how um, if we don't take advantage of this time and what we truly can do to make change in like education but everything then it's kind of like what's the point you know what why did we go through all of this right like you just you gotta really use it for what it is so I think slowly but surely we're getting there um, I feel like and I tell my students this I'm very transparent with them the way I was in school and the way, you know, I'm able to teach you now and have these conversations is like so much better. Like it's improved so much. Like I didn't have these conversations when I was in school. Um, and so I think we're, we're getting there slowly. And yeah, I just, I love this conversation with you. I love the perspective of, you know, you having the school in China, but also like you're teaching here in America, you're, you know, from America. And I think you bring um, just this like, open-mindedness, you know, to these, these conversations and these different topics that we're talking about. So thank you so much, Brantley, for being on the show today. No, Jackie, I appreciate it so much and, and look forward to continuing to listen and, and hear all the great stories you're sharing and also to push them more widely. I hope we can get yeah. folks who might not naturally listen to a podcast about education tuning in. I think it's really important. Thank you so much. And where can our listeners find you? Any contact information you want to share? And I'll add that in the show notes. I think LinkedIn is probably the best. Having lived behind the great firewall for a long time, I don't have as much social media presence. Just was hard to get online in China and post. But LinkedIn is good. So Brantley Turner, I'm easy to find there. And certainly anybody that reaches out, I'll, I'll be happy to connect with and stay in touch with. Well, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. And I hope you have a great day. Yep. All the best for 2023. Thank you for listening to The Teacher's Story. If you like this story, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow this podcast on YouTube and subscribe and leave a comment. All reviews help this podcast keep going and elevating teacher voices. <music>